Greetings, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of DPS. It's me, Adam. I'm going to do a little intro before we kick off our interview with David Dayan today. David is an executive editor over at the American Prospect magazine. It is a leading progressive publication in North America. It's quite different in emphasis from a democratic socialist approach in a number of ways, most of all, uh, a way that is probably no longer as pressing as it might have been at this time last year. That is to say, the American prospect was quite explicitly in the tank for Liz Warren during the primaries, whereas the Democratic Socialists, sort of Jacobin, DPS, whatever wing of this left that we represent here, uh, we were we were quite unabashedly in the tank for Bernie Sanders. And, you know, that distinction got quite heated. You know, there's a, there was more smoke than fire, more, more heat than energy. I don't know, whatever metaphor you want to throw out there throughout the course of that. Uh, I myself got in a couple jabs and punches in that in that battle of Warren v. Sanders. And I still think that there are some really key distinctions and debates that must be had out in the open, but in a friendly and even comradely way, as we socialists might say. And uh, this conversation with David Dayan, I hope can model a way of of discussing these things between a, a guy like myself, who is unabashedly a democratic socialist in orientation, and a guy like David Dayan, who is a remarkably brilliant journalist of unabashed progressive orientation. Now, in the beginning of our chat, you'll notice that David somewhat brushes off my insinuation that there is a difference, a distinction, a fundamental distinction even between the democratic socialist and progressive worldview. I didn't pursue that, first of all, because I didn't bring him on the show to have a debate uh, about you know democratic socialism versus progressivism. That being said, I don't really agree with his conclusion. So I thought that I would talk a little bit about that in the introduction. Old heads may remember that there was something of a controversy between Jacobin Magazine and the American Prospect back uh, in the uh, the halcyon days of uh, whatever the primaries. It seems like it seems like a decade ago now with all the COVID nonsense, the rise of Biden, Trump's recent shenanigans. But, you know, remember the plucky days of, of the Democratic Party primaries when, you know, it was very heated between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And there were a lot of bombs thrown over various uh, real and imagined barricades uh, between the uh, progressive and Democratic socialist wings of the left. Those are those are good days, uh, you know, um, in hindsight, you know, uh, maybe, maybe things shouldn't have been as heated as they were. Uh, we got a Biden. We were always probably going to get a Biden. And our work uh, is is definitely ahead of us. Right. That Hail Mary of having either a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren in the White House was probably always a mirage of sorts. But, you know, it was an important step in building a progressive and far left in this country going forward. Anyway, that being said, there was a debate between the American prospect and Jacobin, if you want to call it that, right? I mean, insofar as the authors that are published there represent those outlets, I don't buy into that. So let's be specific about this. There was a piece by Ryan Dorfler, who is a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, I believe. And he wrote a piece and it was called Executive Orders and Smart Lawyers Won't Save Us. And that was published in Jacobin last year uh, and just almost exactly a year ago. In that essay, Ryan argues in short that we can't cede social change to well-meaning experts, and he concludes that especially in an era of hostile courts, politics, not law, is the only way forward. Now, whom amongst us who listens to DPS with any regularity could disagree with that statement? The problem is, as is often the case in the socialist left, that that setup 
as an alleged takedown of the day one agenda coming out of the American prospect is kind of a straw man. It's kind of a projection, right? I do think it's easy to paper American progressives and David Dayan and those types of folks as these kind of policy wonks who don't understand that the law won't save us. But of course they know that. Of course they know that. That being said, our strategies are somewhat different. Our, our constituencies are somewhat different. I don't think that an Elizabeth Warren type of person, uh, a, a law grad, sees herself as representing you know, the, the working man and woman of this country in quite the same way as, say, a Bernie Sanders or a Cori Bush might see themselves as representing the working man and woman of this country. With that being said, I don't really think that if you had a debate between those two crowds that they would end up coming away from that debate on, on, on fundamentally different terrain. I think it's a different, I think it's a question of emphasis. I think it's a debate that should be had. I think it's a debate that should be had in the open, but I do think it's important that in the, in the process of waging that debate, that we're representing each other's uh, sides fairly. And I think one, one thing that could be said is that piece that appeared in Jacobin accusing the day one agenda of, of being this kind of technocratic top down legal fetishism is not quite fair. And it's not quite fair on the grounds, not only that it's, you know, wasn't fair then, it's it's certainly not fair now insofar as another article appeared in Jacobin Magazine just this past week, written by Ben Beckett, that argues canceling student debt is very good, but Biden won't do it unless we make him. And that there overlaps fundamentally with the day one agenda over at the American Prospect, which argues that Biden has a tremendous amount of latitude and authority with executive orders, and he cannot blame his inaction on the absence of a Democratic majority in the Senate. So there's a lot more. I just want to emphasize that there's a lot more agreement between the progressive sphere and the Democratic socialist sphere of the left than it might seem. And I really do want to encourage people to put down their swords, to put out the, these ridiculous fires to dismantle these barricades that I myself was a part of, of putting up during the Democratic Party primaries and to join arm in arm with American progressives in the fights that are ahead. Because the Democratic Socialist left is growing. It's bigger now than it has been in a very long time in, in North America, in, in America, in the United States. But with that being said, the American progressive movement has a lot of resources, has a lot of knowledge and has a lot of strength that we could absolutely learn from. So in conclusion, while I don't agree wholeheartedly with David's assertion in the beginning of this interview that there are no fundamental distinctions between the progressive movement and the democratic socialist movement, I will agree with him wholeheartedly that these distinctions are often overblown and neither side represents the other fairly in these debates. And, and that's got to stop. This is something that I've said for a long time on this show. The first time I had David on, actually, over a year ago, almost two years ago, perhaps, when I've had the likes of Eric Levitz on. When I have people like uh, Dan Marins on, a uh, politics reporter with the Huffington Post, people who are on the beat and covering progressive politics on the daily, we democratic socialists have a lot to learn from them. And I would venture that they have a lot to learn from us, you know. So today's episode is an attempt to begin that uh, fruitful interaction in earnest. We are all too often siloed in our little bunkers created by social media, our technological forms of communication all too often silo us off into small, narrow, and neat and tidy echo chambers. 
And if we're going to take the movement that we've all been a part of building over the past four to what, 50 years, we're going to have to exit those echo chambers and have conversations, debates, and discussions with people, not only who disagree with us, but people who are adjacent to us. And that's what I hope to accomplish uh, on this show moving forward in a lot of ways, as I have been trying to accomplish uh, for many years. And I, today's episode is, is just another attempt, uh, another stab at that. So you're not going to hear any storming the barricades. You're not going to hear any revolutionary Soviet history today on today's episode, on today's chat with David Dan. But you are going to hear some really important, grounded discussion about the American political scene. And it's one that we cannot sidestep. It's one that we cannot avoid. We cannot smash the state on the way <laughs> towards a socialist utopia. And anyone who's been listening to the show for long enough already knows that in their bones. So enough out of me. If you enjoy this program and you think that we need more like it, I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber of DPS today. While I am a small, overwhelmed and overworked operation here at DPS with many other side hustles and main hustles to support myself, I cannot unfortunately support myself on this podcast alone. Uh, I do the best I can to give my patrons additional bonus content. And there's going to be more of that in the coming months and, and years, I hope. I'm starting a new series called This American Left, which is a play on This American Life. For those of you who did not grow up listening to NPR in the car or whatever. Uh, but This American Left is going to feature really in-depth chats. And I, and I hope debates. I hope pro productive debates with uh, various entities inside the socialist and progressive left. You know, whether they be caucuses inside of DSA, whether they be progressive journalists, other progressive movements. I really want to open up the discourse, the discourse. <laughs> I want to break and ruin and smash the discourse into pieces and open up a real debate and a real discussion across the American left in the coming years because neither side, neither silo, neither echo chamber has it all figured out on their own. I assure you, if you think you do, you are, you are wrong, my friend. So let's support this movement. Let's grow this new socialist media ecosystem. Let's bust out of our echo chambers and, uh, and let's win, right? There's a lot of really shitty things out there. I don't, I don't want them to be shitty anymore. Let's win some stuff. All right. Uh, everybody enjoy this interview with David Dan. I know I enjoyed it very much. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Lots to talk about this week following the results, question mark, of the latest general election. We'll see how that goes in the courts. But as of right now, it's all but certain that uh, we will see a Biden-Harris swearing-in ceremony come January. And to talk to me about the prospects of, of that presidency and much, much more is a return guest to DPS. Always a pleasure to have this man. He is the rain man of the progressive left when it comes to railing out facts and personnel and, and all the rest of it. An incredible journalist, a real legend. Glad to have him back on the show. He's the executive editor at the American Prospect, David Dayan. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. Always a pleasure. You're a guy who, um, you know, has a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of credibility and a lot of respect in, in journalistic circles. And yet, uh, you know, you just don't have, I don't know, the, 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 the fame, the podcast glory that some other journalists, maybe a little younger than you, uh, have and, and, and you deserve it. So that, that's because I'm an there. idiot with PR. 
(laughs) (laughs) At least you're honest. I mean, you're a little older than, you know, the kind of plucky Vox guys and the, the, in the, you know, the, the more kind of um, Twitter pugilists who, who get a, a lot of mileage in this new new ecosystem, this new media ecosystem, but but you deserve it. So I'm glad to have oh, you thank on. You. Thank you. So lots to talk about. General election, you know, the first 100 days, transition teams, economic collapse. What could a president do with their quite expansive executive powers? You're running a piece right now in American Prospect, prospect.org. People should check that out. It's, it's a really uh, respectable and important left progressive outlet. You are, I always sort of like to talk about the last time I brought you on the show, and we'll, we'll be talking about this at length, along with people like Eric Levitz and others, the kind of banner-carrying progressives that I have on, on this show. It is a, a very conscious, conscientiously, very um, you know, a self-avowed democratic socialist platform, but I do believe that we have a lot of shortcomings that you progressives over there, hmm. um, if it even makes sense to, to draw those distinctions in, in many areas, that you progressives over there have pretty well shored up. We could learn from one another for sure. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there are deep distinctions there, but right. to the extent that you know, the benefit of someone who has seen these wars play out over the last couple decades and and has has been actively engaged in some of those fights, you know, that that's kind of the perspective that I bring, and this is something that we haven't been totally, uh, you know, at least for the last four years. That's this has not been a a circumstance that we've we've all seen on the left where there's a, a president that you know at least in theory is willing to listen to this side of uh of the aisle and has the house in their corner as well at least by a, a minimal m- amount and uh, also has the ability to use the power of, of the executive branch and so knowing you know what what can be done in these circumstances and 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 how the, the power that is available to a Joe Biden can be leveraged, I think, is important for understanding where, where the fights are going to be ahead. And also, uh, you know, understanding the dynamics in the House and, and this whole battle that almost immediately after the election results has popped up between the center and the left you know, within the caucus, you know, looking at, at sort of past there, I think, is, is also helpful. There is an internal fight inside the Democratic Party that anyone of progressive or left orientation should be absolutely giddy over, regardless of, of what, you know, the establishment media uh, sort of refracts, the, how, how they refract and reflect and transmogrify that debate is, is another question, of course. You know, as, as uh, other folks have said, you know, uh, w- the discourse can't be failed. We can only fail the discourse. That's that's the, the takeaway of the, of this election for sure. Uh, nonetheless, we know that there are serious, you know, maneuvers being made in this in this party in terms of w- what will this party look like uh, in in ten years, and and whose party will it be, and in whose hands, um, and which which elements of that base are going to be decisive in, in coming elections, and will they will they be able to be ignored the way that they have been? For, for, for decades, you know, um, in the face of their sort of rise to consciousness in many respects about the structural dilemmas that face them in their futures. Um, of course, one of those biggest dilemmas that they face today is uh, COVID. You yourself have been doing something of a COVID roundup for a little while now for the American prospect. Yeah, for a long where, where do we stand, where do we stand <laughs> with that? Yeah. Since where, where do we... Since March, it's it's hard to believe. Was it almost? We're going on eight months here. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, at the time when I started it, I thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes. And obviously this looks like it's going to be a defining moment uh, in terms of, of what it represents and what damage it's going to cause. And we need to be right at the center of that. And so it keeps me going when I'm waking up yet another morning to, to write the, the daily report to know that people get something out of it. So I appreciate that. You know, I mean, the news as we sit here, it's Monday, the 9th of November, uh, as we tape this, the news is that Pfizer has come out uh, and said that the early results of their their large stage three trial, which has 44,000 participants, has been very, very positive, has, has shown an effectiveness rate of their vaccine for coronavirus of 90%, which uh, is actually much higher than when I talked to experts about the vaccine, they, they were expecting something with efficacy of maybe 70% or 75%. Uh, the, the FDA would probably approve something at 50%. So to, to find out that at least preliminarily, they're looking at such a high effectiveness rate, as long as the safety is sound, uh, that could put us on the path to an approval, uh, you know, uh, according to them, by the end of the month. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to line up for shots in December. There has to be manufacturing. There's probably going to be a shortage at first, and it will be rationed to uh, healthcare workers and vulnerable populations like residents of nursing homes. Uh, you're probably looking at about six months from approval as to when the general population on a mass scale will be able to access this. And of course, when you're talking about distributing this vaccine really to the entire country, because that's where it, it, it kind of needs to go, you're talking about the largest logistical project in the history of mankind. You know, it's not I mean, no doubt. I mean, this is a proof of concept for everything that we talk about in the, the progressive left, isn't it? About the left sort of un, un, unraveling and uh, unveiling this massive infrastructure to meet a need. I mean, it, this is an exciting prospect, I think, for people who, who would like to see more of that kind of intervention. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's not just the country, it's the whole world. So uh, mm -hmm. talking about something that needs two doses, so you have to make sure you keep up with people to make sure they, they come back for the second dose 21 days after the first dose. You're talking about something that needs to be kept at extreme low temperatures, something on the order of negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so you have to have the storage and logistical facilities to handle that. Uh, you're talking about something that needs to be at a, a point of service everywhere in the country. So it's, it's about finding uh, that infrastructure, whether it's clinics or drugstores or uh, hospitals or uh, actual employment uh, facilities themselves. You're talking about something that's going to have to be distributed during a time when, you know, if it's as bad as it is now, a highly contagious moment. It could be better, could be worse by the time we actually are distributing it. We don't know. Could be that the flu season makes this a twindemic with two problems happening at once. So the, all of these barriers and hurdles are absolutely incredible. And so, you know, this is the primary task of a Biden administration in the first six months, figuring out how to get this thing out into uh, as many arms as possible. But yeah, I mean, what you say about a proof of concept, 
is really interesting because, you know, we saw how hard it was just to get stimulus checks in the people's hands, right? How, to, how hard it was right. to, get, to get dollars, not, not a vaccine into people. And, you know, we have big ideas on the left about things like universal basic income or Medicare for all. And here we go. We're, we're about to see mm-hmm. where we're deficient or proficient in terms of distributing something that's vital to every man, woman and child in the country. So it's 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 exciting, but it's also uh, kind of terrifying. Will this distribution look different now that it will likely be uh, largely implemented under a Biden administration as opposed to a Trump administration? Will we see a larger, more kind of, uh, you know, centralized state backed rollout as opposed to, you know, say, leaving it up to, you know, I don't know, your your local CVS, as, yeah. as you might imagine would happen in, 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 a, in a Trump scenario? Well, that's a good question. When I talked to experts, I did a, a piece that was just sort of about the transition, but the vaccine played a big role in it. Um, they said that you know, there's a lot of there was a lot of centralization in the Trump's response. Of course, a lot of it was at the level of military logistics. They were putting military not in charge, but but, uh, you know, in a substantial control of determining where the vaccine goes, who gets it and who who gets it first and things like that. It, it seems like the way it goes is they're running on existing rails, but those rails are really thin. So there's something called the Vaccine for Children's Program, which delivers vaccines for, you know, various uh, smallpox and things like that to about three million children a year. Uh, and this is so this is an increase of about a hundredfold from that. But the way that they do that is the state is kind of the central actor. And then the state distributes and figures out what spokes, you know, what 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 distribution centers actually need the vials. And they have to be good about that, because if you let this thing sit, it essentially becomes ineffective. So you have to make sure that when you're getting it to a, a distribution facility, whether it's a drugstore or whatever, that it, it actually gets out and is actually used and distributed and, and, and administered. So it's a very delicate logistical project. You know, the tr- I, I, I certainly didn't totally trust someone who has four years of, of evidence behind them like Donald Trump to manage this process. I, I have a little bit more faith in the guy who managed this, the initial stimulus project and uh, process in 2009. And while that legislation was very underweighted, uh, the way in which it, uh, the money got out was actually pretty decent in terms of a low incidence of fraud and uh, it, it, things got to where they needed to go. And Biden kind of shepherded that process. So, you know, I I definitely would be more comfortable with Biden undertaking this than Trump, but it is going to be kind of merciless in exposing where the failure points are in our our distribution and supply networks. No doubt. Now let's talk about specifics. This is the reason why I like to have on a progressive like yourself and especially progressive journalists, because I can get down into into the details, into the specifics. Um, you know, I, we talk about highfalutin theory and strategy and, and what if scenarios here on the far left quite a bit. Let, let, let's talk the specific vaccine. I mean, pardon the gallows humor. There's nothing funny about, you know, a, a quarter million Americans dead. But, uh, you know, the best news about this Pfizer vaccine, as far as I'm concerned, is it hasn't killed anybody yet. I mean, I mean there's, a real, there's a real issue here about like the, um, 
stability of our public health ideology. And the, and the first one is one you've already covered, is that it needs to be efficacious. And this one's 90% effective, which is huge and, and unprecedented, except for the ones that we know about, right? Like polio and and measles and, and, and those types of vaccines have have ridiculously high effective effectivity rates as right. uh, compared to most vaccines. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is it needs to not kill, maim or, you know, disable people, right. which is also not a given when it comes to, to vaccines. So tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all we know right now is that they, uh, Pfizer has said, and they haven't released, you know, a, a ton of data on this, but they've said that, you know, there's a safety check, it's ongoing, and so far everything looks good. So we don't know specifically. There's certainly history, like with the swine flu in 1976, which, uh, you know, we ordered a ton of vaccine. It was administered during the 1976 election. Gerald Ford famously got a shot himself in the White House uh, in 1976. And it turned out the swine flu wasn't nearly as deadly as everyone thought. And the actual vaccine paralyzed about 500 people. It gave them Gillian-Barr syndrome. So Mostly kids, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I'm not sure if it was mostly kids or not. I don't mm-hmm. recall that. But that was the example of what not to do, right? To rush out yeah. a vaccine when you didn't have all of the questions answered about safety. And it turned out you didn't really even need the vaccine. So uh, I think, you know, that, I hope that these companies take their time in terms of managing all that, because even with a huge participant rate, like 44,000 people, like in the Pfizer study, we don't know what the subgroups look like. We don't know what this does specifically to elderly people or what this does Mm -hmm. to people of color or children. Uh, You know, they haven't broken out that information for us. So uh, until they do, I mean, I I think there needs to be, you know, a, a lot of analysis and study here. To, to figure that out. And I would add a third thing to your list that it has to be efficacious. It has to be safe and it has to be free. You know, yeah, that's uh, a big one. You know, there, there is no chance that the, 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 the American people need to pay to keep themselves safe from this harm. It, it just, it would defy description to diminish our herd immunity. And this is the real herd immunity. When you actually give people vaccines uh, to diminish that based on affordability uh, would be an outrage. And now, along those lines, I wanted to ask you about this. Let me let, let's dig in deeper there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pfizer, uh, it, it's been uh, reported that they opted out. They did this. This vaccine is not a direct result anyway of Operation Warp Speed or some of the other government sort of backstop backstopped programs. It's my understanding that's anyway. Right. Let me know if I'm getting no, this correct. Is that a maneuver on Pfizer's part? Are they trying to set themselves up and, and make the case that, well, we didn't we didn't sort of take government money here, uh, so we should have more freedom or latitude right. to to uh, to make billions <laughs> off off of this thing. Here's another test case for our ability to rein in big pharma. I mean that isn't specifically what they've said. Uh, they've said that they wanted this free from politics, and that's why they didn't take mm. any American money. Of course, their partner on this, a, a company called, I believe, BioNTech, did take a pretty large grant from the German government. So they aren't free of public funding uh, to help with this. And the larger point is that uh, there's a kind of a guaranteed market for this stuff, whether they're inside Operation Warp Speed or not. Pfizer knows that if they get emergency use authorization for this vaccine, 
that the, the some government force is going to manage the distribution of this across the country to hundreds of millions of people. Uh, the government can pay for that or they can make individuals pay for that. And I, I think it would be astonishing if individuals had to come up with $30 or $60, even though that seems like maybe not a lot of money, it would be crushing to, to diminish the, the, the effectiveness of this vaccine just because there's a price tag attached to it. I mean, th- this, is, this is such a world historical disease and pandemic and to not eradicate it right now when you have the opportunity because you want to make a buck would be absolutely outrageous. I mean, our healthcare system, the American healthcare system, essentially operates as, as a subsidy in practice. I mean, in reality, right, to, to pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, that, that make out like gangbusters here, uh, you know, as a result of our bloated uh, system. I mean, compared to other countries, I mean, there's just no doubt about that. I mean, at this point, you know, I don't know. We, we need to we need to bring them to their knees, David, is what I'm getting at. But we'll get to that here <laughs> at a later date. You, you guys have another really interesting project over there at the American Prospect, and I want to get into that. We can definitely, it's going to overlap with the COVID stuff. And if there's other stuff that's really kind of on your radar screen there, we can hold that off for a second. We can talk about that instead. But I, I want to talk about the day one agenda. Okay. This is a really uh, interesting uh, project that you have launched over there at, at the prospect, um, talking about what could uh, a Biden administration do, not only in the first 100 days, but just you know unilaterally with uh, executive authority, but without abusing it, of course. And talking about the different barriers and the hurdles that are always remarked upon anytime people talk about these things, such as the Supreme Court, you know, other other precedent, uh, you know, legislative gridlock, those kinds of things. I mean, it's going to be more important now than ever for any Biden administration to, to, to wield that power to, to overcome the things we've been talking about with respect to COVID. Absolutely. But of course, the, an impending financial crisis that looks to be, I mean, that's going to land on his desk almost day one, isn't it? I mean, this, this, uh, this, this, ha- this division between the haves and the have-nots as a result of this crisis yeah. can't hold forever. It's going to become a much more generalized financial, uh, if not monetary crisis at some point. It's inevitable. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this day one agenda. Yeah. I mean, this is something that you carried over from the primaries, if I'm not mistaken, something that you talked quite a bit a- about after uh, the, the 2018 elections with the, uh, you know, the sweeping the power of, of the squad and, and other um, other potentials inside of the progressive caucus uh, in, 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 uh, in our Congress. Uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, uh, we we actually put out our day one agenda series in the fall of 2019. And we did it because I was frustrated about two things. Number one, at that time, there was a lot of kind of progressive and liberal despair over the prospect of of getting the presidency without obtaining both houses of Congress. Now we know that that may well have come to pass uh, pending the results of the special elections in Georgia for U.S. Senate. Um, uh, So... You know, I wanted to counteract that by saying, hey, guys, we passed a lot of laws in 230 years and uh, quite a few of them uh, are, are uh, give authority, grant authority to the, the, the president that is really substantial and in some ways has not been used before. But it's all there in the statute in black and white. And, and we just need a president that's willing to be creative to make progress for the American people. Uh, uh, so that's the first thing that I wanted to counteract with respect to the day one agenda series. The second thing was 
kind of campaign reporting in general, which focuses so much uh, when it's not focusing just raw horse race kind of stuff, uh, focuses so much on on the, the, the sweeping white papers, legislative agendas that these candidates have that are kind of a little bit divorced from reality because they're also dependent on, uh, you know, what what the makeup of Congress is. And so they're asked about these so-called campaign promises, like the Joe Biden tax plan, which was a campaign promise. But, you know, what's he going to do on the Joe Biden tax plan? I mean, Mitch McConnell is probably unlikely at best, to say the least, to actually put that forward and put it on the, the Senate floor. So, you know, why doesn't campaign journalism look at what a president can do? And indeed, what the job description of a president is, which is to take care that the laws are faithfully ex- executed. And so this was our contribution to that, just to find dozens of ways in which tangible progress can be made without having to pass new legislation. And, you know, it, it's there's been sort of a renewal of this because of the, the outcome of the election. Uh, my argument, I guess, is that this shouldn't have been a renewal. This is something we should have covered all along. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's still going to be important, even if those special elections are won by the Democrats, uh, we're still going to need the day one agenda to make progress through executive agencies and through the uh, executive's own authority. So, uh, you know, I, I'm gratified at one level that so because I see so many organizations now, New York Times, Washington Post, Fox, uh, uh, whoever, picking this up. Uh, but I'm also infuriated by it because it's like, where were you for a year plus yeah, right. uh, when this should have been at the top of the uh, at the top of the list? Now they're picking up uh, your day one agenda or they're sort of crafting their own versions of the day one agenda? Both, a little of both, actually. Okay. I mean, the day one agenda was cited in New York Times Magazine uh, or the opinion section, I should say, on Sunday. Uh, um, we've seen Chuck Schumer specifically cite things like marijuana legalization and cancellation of student debt, both things that we featured very prominently in our day one agenda package. Um, other outlets are, yeah, they're coming up with, well, here are the eight things that, that Biden can do on climate without legislation, or here are four things that he can do to reverse this and that Trump policy. And yeah, I mean, that that should have been part of the conversation all along, not just because Mitch McConnell might keep his hold on the Senate. I hate to say this. This is not, as they say online, in good faith, perhaps. But, uh, you know, it really does kind of, uh, you know, it's a test of your your chops, your journalistic chops, isn't it? I mean, this is complicated stuff. This is not, you know, get a quote, compile the quotes, you know, release your report or whatever. This is, you know, you got to know all the inner workings of government and and, and the who's who and the what's what and the, and the various precedents and throughout history. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's good. It really kind of, it's, it distinguishes the, the journalists from the, from the bloggers, um, well, you know, I to, mean, put it, it, to put it, it nicely. Is, it is at some level and it does at some level, but at the same time, there are experts whose job it is to come up with this stuff and, and they're just a phone call away. So I don't, you know, I mean, while, while maybe some people don't have those resources, New York Times does. And and there there was no reason that during the primaries right. they couldn't have figured out all the things you could do on banking regulation, for example, uh, as a cause of, of the various laws that were already on the books. So uh, I don't take them off the hook uh, whatsoever. 
And uh, I think that, that it's frankly the role of journalists in, in, in this society to figure out, you know, to allow the public to make informed choices by giving them the actual choices that are available, not the fantasy choices of what you would do if you had a, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Uh, so that, that's, I guess, my thinking thought. As pure speculation, but you know, I mean, we we know the culture war pays, right? You know, I mean, we've got this clickbait uh, media economy. The culture war pays, and, and and this is you know, we've seen alongside the uh, the absence of the, this kind of reporting that you're talking about, we've seen the death of of like say investigative journalism, for example. You know, um, you know, this, this sort of long form, uh, well resourced, patient investigative pieces. Uh, and so this is just another part of that kind of um, secular decline inside the industry, perhaps. But it's great. It's great that you're bringing it back. I mean, if, if nothing else, we say, you know, the, the progressives are going to be held to a much higher standard when it comes to their policies and legislation, aren't they? Isn't isn't that kind of the double standard there where the centrists can sort of roll out any any, uh, you know, whatever, just mindless drivel kind of throwaways on their on their campaign promise uh, website. Uh, but but when leftists, you know, uh, throw out. Very popular you know, policies and prerogatives uh, were, were sort of you know, lampooned as, as dreamers and utopians and all the rest of it. So having actionable strategies is what I like, like to try to you know, convince my audience of every day. I get on the mic here on this podcast for the past four years is actionable strategies with, with real roadmaps uh, as a leftist is absolutely essential. So you know, I'm a, I've, I've been a big supporter of, of this since day one. Um, let's talk about before we actually talk about the agenda. Let's discuss – the election. Who won? I mean, that's that, that's the terrain. That's the turf, right? That's 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 the garden on which uh, some of these uh, uh, you know policies may or may not bloom. So, what do our prospects look like after you know uh, after these results shake out? Of course, some are, 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 are you know, remain to be seen. The Senate is up in the air and will be the case until but January. So, uh, but what does it look like? I mean, uh, immediately after the election, I kind of made the the point that all unifying theories about this election are wrong. And uh, if you give me one, I can probably give you a couple examples of where the polar opposite was the case. Whether you're talking about, well, it was centrist that, that brought Biden the election. Well, no, here, here's XYZ for that. Well, uh, progressive showed that, that they, their, their agenda is always and forever, uh, uh, you know, superior. Well, you know, uh, not mm -hmm. entirely true either. Um, so uh, it was a bit of a mixed result, is my point. Um, I think what the election showed is that uh, Trumpism is is more popular than we thought. Uh, there were enough people that were sick, particularly of Trump's antics, to to push him out of office. Uh, and Democrats aren't fully trusted with power. Um, you know, if you if you look at specific issues and what they did in ballot measures in the elections, the liberal side or what would be seen as the liberal side of those issues had a very good night, uh, whether it was the increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour in Florida or a paid family medical leave program in Colorado or uh, the destruction of the payday lending industry in Nebraska with like 80% of the vote by reducing the uh, interest rate on consumer loans. Uh, you know, all of those things show that divorced from partisanship, divorced from, from party, the liberal side, particularly of the domestic agenda 
and financial based agenda has has uh, you know a lot of support. Once you put a Democrat in there, you know that's that's been the problem. And in a lot of these suburban districts that did you know sweep or, or, or head over to Biden, uh, a lot of those House races ended up going the other way. And, you know, maybe one reason for that is that they uh, these, these are traditional uh, center right people and center right voters who were sick of Trump, but who wanted to see a check on, on uh, the Democrats power. And so in 2018, being sick of Trump meant voting out his house. But in 2020, it just meant voting out Trump and you could vote for a Republican house. So, you know, you could you could see this a few different ways. Uh, I, I feel like the, the goal now for Democrats is to show that they can govern. And, you know, the, the immediate reaction to that would be, well, they can't govern because Mitch McConnell might be in control of the Senate. And my answer to that is the day one agenda. Right. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. that you've got to make progress on all fronts wherever you can and show the public that you're on their side. Uh, and even getting into these fights might be worthwhile. I mean, minimum wage increases have won at the ballot 23 straight times in terms of statewide elections, going back to 1998. It is extremely popular. And if Mitch McConnell wants to block an increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which Biden says he supports, let them do it, right? I mean, like, go ahead. I mean, the Republican Party is allegedly the party of the working man following this election. You know, if you listen to Rick Santorum on CNN or Tucker Carlson or, or anybody else, I mean, right. force them to to give lie to that exactly. uh, claim. Yeah, back yeah. them into a corner. Exactly, and and so you know that that's sort of a political or rhetorical tactic, but I think there are some tangible things that you can do within, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the executive branch that will help people. I mean, in 2018, uh, Democrats did run on an agenda. They ran on, uh, you know, it was mostly like protecting health care and lowering prescription drug costs. And, you know, in 2019 and 2020, they didn't do that. So in 2020, I don't really know what the House ran on. Uh, what I do know right. is that there's an opportunity now for uh, Joe Biden to not only put together some sort of economic stimulus for people that that is desperately needed, given the precarity that people find themselves in. But one of the day one agenda items is that you can actually lower prescription drug prices. So, you know, let's uh, let's move forward on that. Let's talk about some of the things that are some of the outlines that are beginning to show themselves in the Biden transition team, in the likely potential Biden cabinet. Uh, it looks like perhaps Mitt Romney, there's rumors right now that Mitt Romney will head up the uh, the effort to save Obamacare, which is uh, inf- infamously perhaps a piece of legislation that he first w- was at least partially responsible for during his time uh, as a governor. You know, I love the ambitiousness of, of, the, the, of this uh, day one agenda. What's it looking like in reality? You know, you got two sides here. You got one side that's just kind of poo-pooing any any possibility for progressive legislation. And now, you know, Biden, the way he's been for decades, he's, you know, nothing's going to change just like he promised the bankers. And there's the other side, I think, are a little bit too Pollyannish about it. Uh, Talk some sense. Where should we stand with respect to that? Yeah, I mean, so much of it depends on personnel. 
you know, the, the famous dictum by Elizabeth Warren and others is that personnel is policy. And to the extent that you're going to get uh, a lot of progress through the day one agenda, uh, you're going to have to have agency heads who have the creativity and aggressiveness that is necessary in order to go forward on that. Uh, I don't think Mitt Romney is, is necessarily that person, although I don't know that that Mitt Romney is is truly in the running. Uh, it's not something I've heard or, or that we've heard at the prospect from our contacts that that seemed to be you know very a very clickable kind of headline. Right. Uh, we did report today, and we have decent sourcing on this that Janet Yellen is mm-hmm. a very potential choice to be the next Treasury Secretary. One thing that uh, you know argues in our favor, and maybe not in the favor of the outlets talking about Romney, is that Biden has said very clearly that he wants the cabinet to look like America. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of white dudes in, in the cabinet. And uh, Yellen would take her place at Treasury, believe it or not, she would be the first woman to run the Treasury Department. And that's true. Also, uh, the, the Department of uh, Defense has only been run by men. Uh, there are a couple other cabinet agencies that have only been run by men. Uh, not HHS, but uh, some others. Right. Anyway, uh, I think Yellen's kind of an interesting choice. She's kind of in between a Lael Brainerd who comes from the Federal Reserve, who people were worried about as a Timothy Geithner protege and, and someone who was trying to seem more liberal during her time as a Federal Reserve Board member, but uh, still maybe not to the extent that we need. You know, Yellen's is to the left of her, maybe a little bit to the right of someone like an Elizabeth Warren or a Sarah Bloom Raskin, who was a Fed governor and also a, a, she was a, a number three, I believe, at the Treasury Department. Under in in the Obama Treasury Department under Jack Lew, so you know I think I think Yellen's an interesting choice. She let's talk about Yellen. Yeah, I mean she uh, chaired the Fed for for quite some time. I mean the progressive economists have been a little hard on her legacy. They see her as being a little overly hawkish at the time, a little too uh, concerned about inflation, which turned out not to be uh, much of a threat, if any, uh, at, at the time. Do we do we expect to see a more aggressive Yellen? Uh, to put out some of these fires and, and re- reinstitute some of these uh, QE measures, whatever those will look like, given the uh, their uh, increasing um, you know impotence <laughs> yeah. to solve the structural dilemmas that we're up against. It's a good question. I mean, you know, I I, I would think that Yellen's uh, uh, views on the subject of of post coronavirus recovery would be pretty similar to where Jay Powell is and what he's been saying lately. I mean, she's uh, kind of an institutionalist. And Powell has been saying that we need massive deficit spending at the, at the fiscal level. Um, and so uh, I, I would imagine that, that Yellen would be all for that as well. Uh, she, you know, I, I'd be worried a little bit about her chairing the financial regulatory uh, apparatus that's a treasury, like the uh, FCOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, um, and particularly because she kind of deferred on regulatory policy at the Fed to some of the staff members who were very powerful there. Um, so that would be a concern of mine. And then, you know, the the the, the somewhat uh, uh, you know worrying about the specter of inflation, I think, was more more monetary focused rather than 
what she would be doing at Treasury. I do think she would uh, free up some of those lending programs to a greater degree than what Mnuchin has done. Uh, he's kind of uh, uh, made it difficult for uh, state and local government lending to flow uh, and also uh, parts of the Main Street lending program. So I, I think I think Yellen would be an improvement. Uh, I think she would be generally pretty good on some of these issues. Um, she would be the first academic economist uh, to run run the Fed or run Treasury, I should say, uh, and that would be sort of novel. Uh, but uh, you know, financial stability in particular, I, I would have uh, a couple questions on. Maybe she just uh, deferred and didn't show her views, but I'd like to know what those views are. Biden has traditionally um, been a bit of a deficit deficit hawk throughout his career. Uh, there's just no way out of the crises that we're facing going coming into his administration where that that attitude is going to hold up. I, there's just I mean, there, there are no there are no doors <laughs> down that hallway that, that open anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the deficit hawk high, uh, hallway, that is to, to extend the metaphor. We're sort of going down a rabbit hole of our own here, but this definitely overlaps with nearly all of the, the policies that you're discussing and the p potentials that you're discussing in the, in the day one agenda. I mean, we we have to take. I mean, I don't I don't want to be. You know, I mean, it's it's look, it's easy to be a kind of cynical. Oh, uh, well, here we go again, another neoliberal in the White House. Nothing's going to happen. It, that's too easy, right? But we also need to not be overly uh, poly, you know Pollyannish about Biden's future. What what, what are we going to see? I mean, I talked to a couple people about this. A, a biographer of Biden uh, last week. What do you, what do you think? Which Biden are we going to see? In day one and, and, and going forward. I mean, who who is this man aside from, you know, a jovial grandpa at this point in time in his life? And that's that's a really good question. And I think that's the key question in some ways. You know, back in May, I think it was, I, I explored that very question. Uh, I wrote uh, an article called Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Biden uh, asking, you know, who were we going to see? I mean, this is this is kind of the key uh, this is the key to everything. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people inside uh, the transition and inside Team Biden and also outside. And, you know, one of the things that some people say is that Biden's sort of a, a, an establishment creature who sort of goes, shifts with the winds. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at his 1972 campaign. It was pretty left. Uh, it was very anti-war, uh, mm -hmm. the way he got into the Senate. Uh, then he drifted as the Democratic Party drifted to the right uh, during the DLC days. And, you know, in his campaign, at least in terms of his promises, he's drifted more to the left as the Democratic Party has. Uh, you know, he got out in front of Obama on gay marriage. Uh, he uh, was was willing to be more sort of he's in the center of the party no matter where the party is. So he will shift as the party mm. shifts. That's the theory anyway. Um, right. You know, we'll see if that comes into practice. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be 100 percent true, uh, but I'm not sure that's going to be 100 percent untrue. And uh, really, it's up to Biden to show us uh, where he's going to go. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting during the campaign, obviously, he had a big focus on uh, the virus and, and, and the economic recovery that we need. And obviously, because of uh, who was his base throughout the primary and the general election. He has a focus on racial justice, but he has really centered climate change within this, his, his, his agenda. 
I mean, he had closing ads that were about climate change. One of the few times we've seen that. Uh, he uh, was was praised for changing his uh, general election views on climate change to something much closer, even though it's not exactly the Green New Deal. He got support mm-hmm. from the Sunrise campaign from on, on those terms. Um, it, it's it's. You know, it's quite interesting that he's foregrounded climate. Uh, and now, you know, we know that he's going to do uh, the thing where he gets, goes back into the Paris uh, Agreement. That's kind of remedial. Uh, that, that's, right. that's something that's obvious that you're going to do. But what more is he going to do? Is he going to use, uh, revert back to the clean power plan that the Obama administration does and come up with a much stronger command and control system? or at least threaten that in order to get some sort of climate action legislatively? Uh, is he going to, uh, you know, de, de, uh, declassify or not declassify, but I forget the name for it, but decertify, I guess, coal-fired mm-hmm. power plants? Uh, is he go- what's he going to do on fracking uh, on public lands, at least, which is what he would have the authority to do initially? Um, uh, you know, what's he going to do on permits and offshore drilling and all that stuff? Is he going to be like Obama, who was this all of the above kind of energy guy who, who after his presidency took credit for America being uh, more energy, uh, independent and being uh, one of the biggest producers in the world of, uh, of, of fossil fuel emissions? Uh, or is he going to uh, recognize the urgency of this and, and, you know, really incentivize uh, alternative, uh, you know, renewable fuels and uh, and those kinds of technologies. So, I mean, I think I think climate's an interesting tech, test case for where he's going to go and how he's going to position himself within the party. Could we see uh, a sort of rebranding of, of the Green New Deal and, uh, you know, and sort of some of those policies in, in a sort of light version, you know, uh, a not non-Green New Deal light implemented in the next four years, which which would be a very promising platform uh, for the progressive left to build on in, in the coming years. And I guess, you know, that let me, let me blend in my next two questions. That's my first question. Is a correlate of that, a necessary correlate to think through it would be, I guess that'll all depend on what kind of party this is going to be going into 2022, isn't it? Won't it? I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's really what's at stake right now. We're not going to know. No, that's going to shake out until after January, until after these uh, elections in in Georgia, which will shake out the Senate and elsewhere. But, um, you know, we're going to sort of tag center, I'm guessing, uh, up until then. That'll be the official narrative of the party. But there's a battle going on. And which policies rise to the top, you know, will will, uh, depend on uh, the results of that battle and and the direction of this party. It seems like Pelosi is not willing to give in to, you know, the Abigail uh, Spanberger wing of of the House, of the caucus anytime soon. She's trying to push back. What – I don't know. This is a sort of broad, vague provocation. My my hypothesis – Last week, talking to Branko Marchetich, who wrote a book on Biden, was was that will we see Pelosi pull Biden to the left, given that Biden is that sort of a perennial centrist figure, no matter which way the winds blow? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's 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 the million dollar question, right? Um, uh, I think he's more malleable than Pelosi is on these issues. I'd say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to start, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think Pelosi is very sort of entrenched um she's ideological whereas biden is more pragmatic perhaps yeah i i I think that's right and uh you know 
the the leadership elections in the House are going to be really interesting. Uh, Pelosi made a deal in 2018 uh, uh, that said she would only commit to two more terms and then she would leave after that. And the first term, uh, she'd need majority support of the caucus. And in the second term, she'd need two thirds support of the caucus. Um, and that's what she needs in order to be the speaker next term, uh, next session. And uh, that means that a pretty small group of house Democrats can really uh, uh, hold the, hold the cards on whether she is going to be uh, the next speaker or not, and they can make demands. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw that to some extent uh, after the 2018 elections. Uh, uh, progressives in the Progressive Caucus got more seats on some of the important committees known as the money committees, financial mm-hmm. services, uh, where AOC is, and Rashid Tlaib and, and Katie Porter. Uh, as well as budget and and uh, uh, appropriations, um, so you know uh, uh, you could see something like that again uh, uh, to a greater degree, or you could see uh, you know uh, Pelosi forced out. I mean, I don't think that's impossible. Um, and you know, the question is, who is doing that? Is it the centrist wing? that right. has finally had enough or is it progressive wing? And both of them have enough people uh, that they could, they if they're committed to it, they could do it. Um, but the question is, who's in place after that? I mean, Pelosi has kind of run the house like North Korea in that she set up no successors for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she, for years, has frustrated any opportunity for someone to, to be an heir apparent. And there really isn't one right now. And so, you know, if if what has to be in the back of the heads of uh, both progressives and centrists alike is is what happens after Pelosi, uh, you know, uh, they, that that fight is coming. It's going to happen after 2022. It might happen with Democrats in the minority, uh, but it's going to happen. And what happens in the next two years is is preparation for that. Right. I think, I mean, there's no question that uh, if, if the center or the right of the party, uh, the center of the political spectrum and in, in, in broad, the, the right of the party uh, were to get control of the leadership position, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we, I think we're already on the cusp of realignment. I mean, this is a realignment election, uh, the, the beginnings of a realignment election insofar as you're right, the, the results were mixed across the, the, the board. I, I hear a lot of leftists, you know, sort of crowing about well, you see all the progressives did well. Well, in some cases, in many cases, they did, you know, as a percentage, you know, compared to what is always the question. I think progressives were something like had 70% success rate, which was better than others. Uh, but of course, not unassailable, not perfect. Um, we're in a realignment situation where the populist is is in, in the election in many respects was a was a uh, you know a, a megalomaniacal uh, reality TV game show host uh, who's kind of a one-off inside the Republican Party with himself having real, no real successor, uh, at least not one that could galvanize that kind of uh, populist coalition. Again, I don't think anyway. Um, but that's another that's another discussion. Um, you know, I, I don't know a- any ideas about whether or not our progressive stalwarts in in, in Congress will be able to. Um, get together and, and, and get any real substantive power 
in the coming two years. It's going to be there's going to be a lot at stake here. We could see another we could see a red wave in the midterms. Um, that's oftentimes what happens, you know, uh, when when you have a, a contentious, emotional general election, isn't it? Yeah, uh, uh, it, it's it's very unclear, and and you know, throw into the mix the fact that all house districts are going to be red. Uh, after, you know, in time for the 2022 election. And we don't even know what the landscape is going to look like quite yet. Um, you know, it's it's going to be different. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just feel like so much depends on these two years and whether Biden can have a successful start. Uh, and it's And that's in his hands. Uh, that is not necessarily just contingent on, uh, you know, what he can get out of the Republicans. Um, it, it's in his hands to uh, figure out uh, the, the, you know, what what avenues he can make progress on and, and then make that progress. Uh, I think what has happened is that over the last several election cycles, uh, voters have generally thrown people out that have not worked in their interests. So in 2006 and 2008, there was a wave election. There were two wave elections because Republicans weren't doing the job. And then in 2010, uh, they moved on to uh, Democrats. Uh, uh, and they, they turned on Democrats and, and gave Republicans a wave election in 2010 and 2014 because Democrats weren't doing the job. And in 2016, arguably. Uh, in 2018, they went back to Democrats uh, because nobody is really fulfilling those needs of the American people at the federal level. And the first party that figures it out is gonna have a lock on, on this electorate for the next 20 years. But they have to actually do it. They have to not listen to their their consultants and the uh, lobbyists and 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 so on, and uh, uh, they 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 have to make progress or at least get caught trying to make progress, right? right. Um, so uh, that's that's really the answer. I mean, the, the exit polling done. I mean, who knows? The, you know whatever, how accurate this stuff is. But the exit polling out of Fox uh, was one of the more notable things to appear on Tuesday that, you know, something like 72% of people are, uh, approve of, uh, you know, state, uh, state provided health care, which is not exactly Medicare for all, but, you know, there's a drug legalization, decriminalization, you're seeing uh, massive numbers, student loan debt forgiveness, you're seeing big numbers across the board. We're seeing like the potential for a realignment right now. And so far as the desires of, of the American people don't fit neatly into either either box, either camp, and it's going to take uh, uh, some bold action um, by one side or the other. To, to decide to to um, open up the, the the doors right and and, and allow um, you know certain contentious risky policies uh, to come in you know and and again you know I don't know uh, some folks on the far left are not really um, not exactly optimistic about that and and of course the, the biggest threat as many have said the biggest threat is if if we fail um, no, I don't have a mouse in my pocket. The we I mean here is, you know, the, that the, the, the Democratic Party coalition. It's hard to know if whether or not we're welcome in that if you listen to some voices or not. But the, that we, if we fail, uh, we're bringing in somebody potentially worse than Trump insofar as they will actually, they'll be good at their job. Right. right? They'll be right. good at what they do. 
Yeah, that is the fear. A competent Trump is definitely a, a, a present danger uh, if you are going to continue on the path that Democrats have been on for 40 years, which is not quite living up to uh, their tradition as the party of the people uh, that, that, that gets things done for everybody. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's the challenge. And, you know, there's certain, there's a certain electoral self-preservation here that, you know, it's one thing to, to take power. It's another thing to do something about it. But if you do something about it, you can keep power. And, and you would think Mm. that that instinct would be, uh, you know, palatable to, to, to Democrats. Uh, but it just, it just doesn't seem to work out that way sometimes. Last question. This is a, you know, I like to make this one a tough one. Uh, something you know, nobody's going to like your answer. Uh, it's going to be uh, maybe not even you. What, what's, what's the fate of this, this Bernie wave? Uh, Bernie himself is getting up there in age. He's not a young man. Uh, he's not a, not a chance he'll be around for uh, 2024. It's not even going to be a contested election, it seems. But, uh, you know, even hypothetically, uh, you know, who, who's the banner carrier for this progressive left movement right now? Is it going to be an AOC? Is it going to be a Katie Porter? Is Warren going to sort of show up on the scene again? What's going to be the shape of of this agenda? You see a Cori Bush coming into to Congress, you know, this term is going to be really interesting to, to see her really interesting mix of social justice and kind of a, like a like a sort of a, I mean, a, a Dr. West, Cornell West kind of vibe to her, right? You know, someone who's talking about in big, you know, ethical, moral uh, terms, which I think could really inject some some liveliness and humanity into the, into the party. Um, you know, who's, who's going to carry this banner? What do, you, what do you see shaking out in the next four years? Yeah, I mean, I think what we know right now uh, is that the progressive movement is big enough to gain victories in certain parts of the country, mostly in the big cities. Uh, we've, we've seen that certainly true in New York City. Uh, we've seen that in, in several other cities, uh, Detroit, Minneapolis, uh, what have you. We just It really just popped up in Los Angeles in this election. And you had a DSA member take down a sitting incumbent uh, on the LA city council first time in 17 years an incumbent has lost <laughs> a, uh, for reelection. Uh, you saw it with, uh, progressive prosecutors all over the country, but also in LA, uh, measure J, which was like sort of the, uh, uh, the manifestation of defund the police passed in Los Angeles. It devotes 10% of the budget takes it out of the hands of, uh, the, the police department and puts it, into community programs benefiting, uh, you know, areas of color, low-income, uh, vulnerable areas. Um, so we know that there's a beachhead here, and in the cities, this this is very popular, and the organizing has gotten a lot better. So that not only can you talk about these things, but you can win on them. Uh, mm-hmm. What we've seen a little bit less of is the proposition this can win outside these big cities. Now, Katie Porter is certainly someone who has, and Mike Levin is another one, although that's a bluish, that's a bluing area uh, in Southern California and San Diego. Um, You know, there are cases like Mike Siegel in Texas and Cara Eastman in Nebraska, where they ran behind Biden. In one case, uh, Biden won the Nebraska district and actually got an electoral vote out of it uh, in Omaha. 
uh, and Eastman, who had run for a second time, who was progressive, uh, uh, lost. So, you know, it, it, it seems like there's, there's still a wariness on a national level, well, well, despite there being a receptiveness uh, in, in certain discrete areas. So, but the movement is growing. Uh, there's no question of that. Uh, and it's going to take time because new ideas always take time in America. And I don't know who the standard bearer is necessarily going to be. I think the media has chosen and made that AOC. So uh, it would take an act on her part to change that. Um, but uh, regardless of whether it's uh, leaderless or leaderful, as uh, they sometimes say in activist movements, uh, it's here to stay. I mean, uh, the, the progressive movement is, is at a very strong point right now, even if it's not strong enough maybe to capture a majority of the country. Um, and, uh, you know, the extent to which those ideas uh, are infused into the next administration uh, will go a long way to determining whether the, 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 the movement is poised to expand its reach. Follow-up. Final, final question. You got it. Can the Democratic Party withstand the rifts that are growing within it? Is this sort of posturing and the kind of political maneuvering? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, let's uh, another comparison here, sort of off offbeat, but it, it, it'll play. Hear me out. UK Labor Party right now having a ma- major shakeups and, and, and ruptures and rifts inside of it right now. But, you know, someone came on the show a couple of weeks ago and said, what, is anybody surprised that they're doing politics inside the Labor Party? <laughs> you know, and that's what they do. That's what it is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, are, is that is that is that are we overplaying these rifts inside the Democratic Party right now? Or, or are we really on, on, on something of a on the cusp of, of a realignment, something about something that could really shake up the the entire, you know, um, division of the of, of the political scene in the United States? Or, or will they sort of reconsolidate such that we could still see the, a Spanberger and an AOC inside the Democratic Party four to eight years from now? Um, Not small questions, David. That's why I bring <laughs> you on here, my man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's I, I, there's certainly a lot of a lot of dissension right now. And I think that mm. happens, you know, it's particularly in the House. And that's what happens when you lose an election. You know, uh, mm. uh, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan and all that. Um, so there's a lot of finger pointing going on right now. And uh, there's a question as to whether the party can can unify around some common themes and, and deliver progress, because that's what they're going to have to do if they want to stay in power. Because there's a very, I mean, this is going to be a very thin majority. There's a very real risk that they're going to lose it in 2022. I mean, that, that's a present danger, especially uh, when you have a, a Democratic president. Usually his party in Congress uh, does worse in that midterm, that first midterm. So, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of risk there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think there is a, a, a path forward to, uh, patch that up. Um, you know, unfortunately we don't have a political system. We don't have ranked choice voting in every state, just in Maine. And we, we don't have the ability to have multi-party democracy. I mean, if this uh, Democratic Party was in the UK, it'd be four different parties. And everybody mm-hmm. knows that. Uh, and the movement sort of that beat Trump 
it was almost kind of a popular front movement uh, that brought in uh, independents and progressives and mainstream Democrats and never Trump Republicans uh, and put them all together and and they don't fit together, right? <laughs> they don't they don't work yeah. well together. Um, so I, there there are a lot of hard moments ahead, I think, for Democrats in the House of Representatives, uh, to say the least. Uh, and uh, uh, unifying is going to be it's going to be very difficult because there's a very there's very much a resistance to the kind of messaging. Uh, that progressives and uh, democratic socialists are pushing uh, at an ideological level, uh, but also at a level of just, you know, I mean, what, what, what progressives are asking is for elected officials to do their job. And at right. some level, we sort of do, do don't want to do really their job. Yeah. They don't want to do their job. And uh, they, they, they see their job as holding back the tide of progress rather than rolling along with it. And that, that's, that's, that there's, there's just a fundamental problem there. Uh, it's, it's just at odds and, and I don't know how it's going to shake out. One way to conclude here is to take on some of the, um, the, the wisdom, the comparative wisdom from from the British left, for example, and that you know we we admire the dynamism, I think, of the parliamentary system over here, right? Because we sort of see ours as more slower moving, where you can't sort of have a like a, a, a Corbinite party sort of swept into power in such a sort of uh, you know exciting fashion, right? Our, ours, our our change happens a little more slow and steady, but perhaps because of that reason, right? It's it's more it's more steady, it's more stable, isn't it? It's more durable. It doesn't matter who the party leader is in that respect. He he can't uh, expel you know the AOCites <laughs> from from the party. You know, I mean, uh, and, and I'm not even sure they have any desire to do that. They understand the role that they play in shoring up a, a, a larger base. And so you know they're here to stay, and they're not going anywhere. Uh, you know, and that whereas you know they can be. Right pushed in and they can be swept in and pushed out just as fast in the parliamentary system as we've seen. So, you know, there's, there's uh, take heart in that at least if nothing else. Uh, so anyway, David Dayan, executive yeah, editor, editor at the American prospect, everybody check out the day one agenda. It's been up for a long time. You guys going to be adding to that in, in the wake of, uh, in the wake of Trump and the, you know, the, the early days of. Absolutely. Biden. Yeah. You can, you can definitely expect more, day one agenda stories from us over the next couple months. Uh, I have one going up tomorrow, in fact, on Tuesday. Uh, and uh, all of those will be collected at prospect.org slash day dash one dash agenda. So that's, that's the repository. We'll throw it up on the show notes, of course, as always. And, and you know, a lot of these have been up since we chatted last time over a year ago. But you know, if you guys are interested in drug legalization, decriminalization, uh, in anti-monopoly, you know, movements, and obviously finance and Wall Street, climate change, postal banking, you know, uh, obviously drug, you know, companies, Medicare for all, drug, um, you know, taking down drug prices, taking on big pharma, Medicare for all, can- the cancellation of student debt, a- any of the, the the structure of our government. Um, and much, much more tax policy. You guys all have your niche interests. Head over that uh, to that outlet over there, and uh, you know they, they've got something for you. Really interesting. Thanks again, David Dan, for joining us, and uh, you know come back here to check in once we see what shakes out in the Biden administration. Okay, Adam. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. Once again, if you enjoyed this here broadcast and you think the world needs more of it. 
I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber of the DPS today. You'll get some bonus content along the way, and you'll get the warm and fuzzies of knowing that you are supporting the new left agenda and contributing to the education of a new socialist and progressive cadres across the country. People say, Adam, you use this word cadres all the time. It's kind of old school. It's kind of old fashioned. It's, a, it's an old military term. And what it means is that there are cadres. There are more advanced layers, more true believers, but but not true believers in the, in the, in the negative uh, sense. True believers in the sense that they are agile and, and educated and intelligent and experienced and seasoned enough to advance the struggle when moments of opportunity arise. Right? We have to be implanted across broader society and communities and workplaces, in schools, in the communication sector, um, in political organizations, certainly, in unions. We need to be broadly implanted across society to be ready, willing, and able to act and move the ball forward should the opportunity arise. We cannot be constantly starting from scratch and reinventing the wheel every time there's a new upsurge in consciousness, in anger, in opportunity. And that's what Building Socialist Cadre is all about. That's what this podcast is all about, at least in part. And if you want to support it, I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. All right, patrons, I'm going to give you a bonus episode very soon. We're going to kick off this American Left series for patrons very soon. And for the rest of you, we will see you next week.